I don't like red beets. That's a confession. Just wanted to tell you that. I don't like red beets. My mother is here this morning, so mom, I put you in my sermon, but she used to make us eat red beets, and they would bleed all over the plate. ah, I never liked them and never developed a taste for them, so naturally, I don't want to go to the annual red beet festival in Kidron, Ohio. Um, they, They actually have a festival, and they have all these different beets there at this festival, even uh, nasturtium beet ice cream, whatever that is. And they have bluegrass music, and they actually sing a song about beets, um, although that could be kind of cool. But since I don't like red beets, I don't want to go to a festival which celebrates red beets. I have no place there. One website reported hundreds of fans of beets filled into the old church at Sonnenberg to sample beets and admire the beets that were entered into the contest. Some people love red beets. I am not one of them. I don't want to go to this festival for red beets. Think about it. Why do so many people want to live forever in heaven when they don't love God? Isn't that odd? I don't want to go to the beet festival because I don't like beets. Why do people want to live forever in heaven when they don't really love God in this life? That is really odd. Many people probably find eternal life appealing because, after all, it's better than hell, and they like the idea of an eternal party with relatives and old friends um, Uh, living on with all of the, the best things of this life without all the sin and sickness. But that's weird because it's, it's like wanting to go to the beat festival for the bluegrass music. The point of the beat festival is to celebrate the beats. The point of eternal life is celebrating God. True Christians want to live forever so they can love and praise and experience God forever. Too many people fail to realize that eternal life is all about communion with God. It's about enjoying the glory of God forever. Why would people who don't love God in this life think they would enjoy eternal life with God? If they don't want him now, they certainly won't fit in then. Eternal life is only for people who desperately want God forever through Christ. Jesus lived for God's glory. He came to rescue people and lead them into God's glory so they could live forever to enjoy God's glory. That is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And Jesus' prayer in in John 17 is saturated with the glory of God. The closer you study this prayer, the more you see how, how captivated, how motivated Jesus was by the glory of God. Jesus lived and died to glorify God. Jesus lived and died to glorify God. Men and women live and die for many great causes. In fact, many men and women live and die for trivial and terrible causes. But Jesus Christ lived and died for the greatest cause, to glorify 
God. He ate, slept, and breathed the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify God? What does that mean? To glorify God is to praise and honor God, to acknowledge and reveal the infinite worth of God. You glorify God when you enjoy God as your greatest delight and make His inestimable worth and beauty more visible. You radiate that. Obedience glorifies God because by your obedience, you show that God is most valuable to you. You glorify God when you draw attention to His immense glory, magnificence, grandeur, splendor. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus lived and died for. In the upper room, Jesus spent considerable time teaching His disciples, and here in John 17, He began to pray in order to close out their time together in the upper room. John wrote, when Jesus had spoken these words, which connects John 17 back with the previous chapters, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, He he lifted up His eyes to heaven to His Father. You see, heaven is the uh, glorious place of God, the dwelling place of God, and and his disciples were there, and they listened to him pray, and they took in his words as he poured out his heart to his Father. John 17 is the most extensive prayer that we have from Jesus. Many scholars outline this prayer into three simple sections. First, Jesus prays for himself. Second, Jesus prays for his 11 disciples. And third, he concludes by praying for us or later believers to come. And and so in this first section, in verses 1 through 5, we transport into the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, and we get to hear Jesus pray for himself. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son May glorify you. Then in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus glorified God. How did he live to glorify God? On earth, he accomplished the work God gave him to do in order for God to look great. Back in John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus ate, slept, and breathed God's will and glory. And he didn't just try hard. He got it done. He got it done. God sent Jesus to do a lot, to seek And save the lost to give eternal and abundant life, to bring truth and grace, to call sinners to repentance, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to live a perfect life of obedience, to heal, to do signs and wonders, to reveal divine love and truth. God even sent Jesus Christ to bring judgment. And Jesus did it all without even a hint of hesitation. If God gave it to Jesus to do, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Friends, none of us has ever in all of our lives seen an act of the will and mind and affections that surpasses this. Jesus was perfectly committed to glorifying God in everything. Everything. 
And that perfect commitment drove him to die for God. Did you know Jesus died for God? Certainly not died for God's sins. God doesn't have any sins. But really to die for him in order to obey him and accomplish his will and his work of redemption. The primary reason Christ died on the cross was to glorify God in his act of rescuing and redeeming a lost humanity, God's people. That, my friends, is what devotion looks like. Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. The word hora or hour is significant. It's a theme that runs through the book of John. Take John 2, verse 4. Jesus said to his mom at the wedding in Cana, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In John 7, verse 30, Jews were pursuing his arrest, and it says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And John 8, verse 20 is similar. Those verses, they foreshadow that there was an hour that was coming where Jesus would be arrested and hands would be laid on Jesus. Probably the most relatable cross-reference uh, cross here is John 12, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here the word hour is linked to the glorification and death of Jesus Christ. He continued in verses 27 and 28, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Right after this, Jesus mentioned being lifted up from the earth. And verse 33 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What I'm saying here is that the word hour in verse 1 is linked to Jesus being glorified through the cross. John 13, 1 solidifies that. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. When Jesus prayed this, the cross was in view. All of his words with the cross in view. His hour had come to be slaughtered for sinners. Note two essential things here. Number one, Jesus asked God to glorify him in death. How could Jesus be glorified through this scandalous cross? How could God be glorified through the most sinister act of all of history? The answer to that is the guts of the Christian faith. Jesus is glorified through what the cross accomplishes, namely redemption and eternal life for God's people. Number two. Jesus asked God to glorify him in order for him to glorify God. 
He wanted to be glorified so that in turn he could glorify God. Jesus died so God could receive glory. Think about that. Jesus laid down his life to glorify the love, wrath, grace, justice, mercy, holiness, and goodness of God. The cross shows the great extent which, which, uh, with which God goes to redeem his people. That's glorious. Now, was it egotistical and vain for Jesus Christ to ask God to glorify him? In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God did say, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. But consider that it is God the Son asking God the Father to glorify Him. Jesus wasn't asking God to give glory to another. In verse 1, try to hang on to this, God is asking God to glorify God so God can glorify God. You get that? Jesus asked to be glorified so that he could in turn glorify his father. A little, a little boy and his father, they went to a museum one day. And the little boy, as they were walking through, could not see over the, the walls to the exhibit, the railings. And so he asked his father, would you lift me up? And as his father hoisted the little boy high in the air so he could see over the railings, the son shouted, higher, daddy, you're the strongest, higher. As the father lifts the son up to see the exhibits, the son praises his father's love and strength. Jesus lived and died to glorify his father. That is exactly why we can have eternal life in Christ. Otherwise, we would just remain under the wrath and judgment of God and the power of death. But because Jesus lived and died to glorify God, we can live forever in him. Here's a simple application for you. If you really want to glorify God in your life, live to glorify his son. Live to glorify his son. Take it a step further. Die to glorify his son. Jesus died to glorify God. Are you living in a way that when you die, God will be glorified through your death? That's worth thinking about. Listen, all you really need to do is jump online and go read some obituaries to see how few people's deaths glorify God. You'll read about their family. You'll read about their employment. You'll read about their hobbies. You'll read even about church membership. But rarely do you read about someone's love and affection for Jesus and how they live to glorify their Father in heaven. When your casket closes, will people rejoice in God? Two quick side notes about the beginning of this prayer. Some people might think to themselves, if God is truly sovereign and over everything, and God truly has a predetermined plan, why pray? What difference does it make 
Why pray if God is sovereign? Why pray if he has a predetermined plan? Consider this. Jesus knew the cross was coming in a few hours. He knew God predestined his crucifixion, and yet he prayed. He prayed. He prayed for God to glorify him so he could glorify God. Jesus knew that was coming. Jesus knew that was happening. Jesus knew the plan of God, yet he prayed for God's will to be done. Jesus believed in God's sovereign and predetermined plan more than anyone else in history, and he prayed more fervently, more intensely than anyone else in history. The sovereignty of God drives and emboldens prayer. It does not hinder prayer. The second quick aside, the road to glory is filled with pain. The road to glory is filled with pain. Jesus was glorified through pain. His pain had an end. But he had to go through it in order to be glorified and glorify God. If you want to glorify God, you must travel through pain. And if you study your Bible, guess who else is going to be glorified one day? We are. But we have to endure pain first. God glorified Jesus and he also gave him authority. Jesus has universal authority and gives eternal life to everyone God gave him. Jesus said, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God the Father has given universal authority To the Son. To the Son. The word authority means the power to reign and rule. God gave Jesus the right to govern everything. Isaiah 9, 6, which you've probably heard before, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is universal dominion. John 3.35 says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Later in John 5.22 and 27, Jesus said, The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And right before Jesus left earth, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is why the Bible says Jesus is Lord of all. When Jesus said all flesh, it was a Hebrew way of saying every person. Every person. Jesus knew he had authority over every person. God gave it. He knew he had it. Jesus holds authority over every Caesar, emperor, king, president, pope, imam, and spirit being. Jesus has complete authority over you. He has complete authority over me. He has complete authority over our church. Jesus Christ reigns and he rules over everything. He possesses universal authority over 
everyone. And he also possesses the authority to give anyone eternal life. His authority is charitable. Do you buck against authority? That's in me. Is it in you? Well, authority is not just cold, heartless. Jesus has authority that's charitable, that gives and gives and gives. Jesus has authority to give eternal life because he has conquered death by his resurrection and he is himself life. Just listen to how the book of John connects Jesus and life. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John 5, 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. John 6, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6, and 48, I am the bread of life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's an authoritative hand. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is life and Jesus gives life. He's the authority on life. You want to know about life? You got to go to Jesus. He's the authority. Now, God is glorified when Jesus Christ gives people eternal life, but to whom does Jesus give eternal life? And and this, I think, is really going to stretch some of you. But study the verses closely and let God's word shape your theology. Make sure that your emotions, make sure that your preconceived ideas and philosophies don't get in the way of what God clearly says in his word. Focus on the logic here. To whom does Jesus give eternal life? Verse 2 says that Jesus has the God-given authority to give eternal life to all whom God has given him. Not all, not even all flesh, but all whom God had given him. The given me of verse 2 is significant. 20 times the New Testament refers to Christians as eklektos, or the elect, or the chosen. People chosen by God to be redeemed by Jesus. The elect, biblical word, or chosen, biblical word, are those whom God gave to Jesus to redeem First, Christ's authority is over all flesh, every person, but he only gives eternal life to those that the Father has given to him. Verse 2 refers to two distinct groups of people. Second, we know from Scripture and personal experience that not everyone receives eternal life. We know that. Jesus doesn't give eternal life to everyone or else everyone would have eternal life. Now, that shakes some of you, I'm sure. 
And I know that some of you will struggle with this. It's hard to understand. You may get mad at me. You may get mad at God. You may be confused. By design, God leaves us with questions. We have to be okay with that. (laughs) Because after all, God is an infinite and eternal being. There are some things you and I cannot figure out. And yet we, we, we sometimes keep pressing in the areas that it's like, you know what? Are we going to believe the Bible or not? It's not going to be perfectly explained. We have to be okay with the fact that God leaves us with questions. And we have to see that God has made some things very, very clear in his word. You have to believe it. If you want to love and glorify God, you have to believe it. And you have to believe that it is good, even if you don't understand it. Other passages address this. I want you to see them. John the Baptist said in John 3, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Not one thing. Eternal life and all that comes with it, and all that comes with it is 100% gift. Grace, you didn't do anything to earn it, to merit it. You have nothing to do with it. It is grace upon grace. It is gift. We earn nothing. And that rattles prideful and and self-sustaining people. That makes them squirm because they want something to do with it. That's the American way, is it not? And so this type of teaching from the Bible rattles Americans. Many don't even want to hear this. Turn to John 6, 37. In your Bibles, grab a pew Bible. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. John 6, verse 37. I preached on this on May 18th of last year, so this is review. You should be a total pro on this. Jesus said this, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's noteworthy. God gives people to Jesus to redeem and all of them come. All of them come and none of them are ever cast out. That's what Jesus said. Who comes to Jesus? Every single one of those gift people. Jesus saves all of God's gift people. He never fails to save Now just jump down to John 6, 39 and 40. Jesus continued, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You need to think about that deeply. God gives people to Jesus and orders Jesus to give them eternal life and to lose none of them. That's God's order. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gives them eternal life and none of them are lost. All of them come. All of them experience the glory of God. Of God. Many people will perish. 
So either Jesus lost those people or God never gave them to Jesus to redeem. Look closely and you'll see it in the passage. This is what Jesus is saying. Turn to John 10. I want you to see it even more. This is review as well. I preached this back on January 25th. Again, you should be professors on this. John has has built this point throughout the entire book. In verse 26, John 10, Jesus explained to the Jewish leaders why they didn't believe in him. They weren't part of his flock. They weren't his sheep. God didn't give them to Jesus. See, the sheep hear Jesus and follow him. Jesus gives eternal life to all of his sheep. They have it because Jesus gives it. The religious and powerful Jews were not his sheep. And in verse 29, Jesus told them, My Father who has given them to me, he was talking about God giving the sheep to him, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, the sheep, out of the Father's hand. God gives the sheep to Jesus. Jesus saves them. They hear and follow Jesus. And this is so awesome. Jesus keeps them safe forever. None are lost, ever. He's never like, oh, that one got away from me. <laughs> that one's off. I where. I lost a couple sheep. Sorry, God, I couldn't keep some. They're slippery. He keeps them safe forever. John made it clear for us. God gives people to Jesus, and Jesus saves all of them. None are lost because Jesus always does what the Father asks. Now, next week, we're going to hit on this more. All right, so I'm stirring it up a little bit. Some of you might have questions. Email them, talk to me, call me, whatever. But listen to what else Jesus prays. This is a foreshadowing of where we're going. John 17, 9 through 12. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they, uh, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's clear. God gave Jesus particular people from the world to redeem and Jesus successfully gives eternal life to every single one of them. That's what the text says, that's the truth, and it's glorious because every single person that's saved deserves hell. And Jesus rescues some to show his incredible glory, to show his power, to show his might, to show the, the beauty of his grace, his redeeming and sovereign grace. 
He has authority to do that. They all receive eternal life through Christ. And that's great news because otherwise, if Jesus doesn't save, we perish. There is so much about God that we cannot comprehend. Can we be humble enough to admit that we can't figure God out? Not entirely. He is eternal. He is infinite. But we do know that because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has the authority under heaven to give you and me eternal life. And that is what John wants us to get. The purpose of John's book is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is pleading with you to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ alone to save you, and to live and die for the glory of God. Eternal life is meant to be enjoyed. Here's why. Eternal life is all about knowing God and experiencing his glory. Eternal life is all about knowing God and experiencing his glory. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. First, in order to have eternal life, you need to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. Not know of him, not know about him, know him. To know God is to enjoy close fellowship with God, to love and adore him as he loves and adores you. It's the closest of relationships. The only true God, you need to hear this, is personal. Jesus Christ is personal. He's personal. You need to know him now in this life to have eternal life. Secondly, the essence of eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God, when God gives someone eternal life, he is giving them an eternal relationship with him in which they enjoy his glory forever. Why would anyone want eternal life? If you think about that, what's going to change from this life? I don't think you want to live eternally in this life. And so if you want eternal life, what, what is that? Why would anyone want to live forever? Because eternal life is all about knowing God and experiencing God's glory. Charles Spurgeon said, to know God is eternal life. That's right. In verse 2, Jesus said, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus makes people alive to enjoy God forever. That's what life is about. You really live when you know God and you know Jesus Christ and you revel in his covenantal love Escape from hell is one of the great benefits of being a Christian. It is. Earlier in my life, to be honest, this was, uh, this was largely my focus of my relationship with God. I don't have to go to hell. And that sounded great to me. And I was scared of hell, really scared of it. And I didn't want to go there. And so my primary focus was, okay, I don't need to go there if I just, you know, if I have God and But as God worked in my life and opened my heart up, he has taught me through the years that he is the greatest benefit of salvation. I get God. I get Jesus Christ as a gift to me who deserves to perish forever in hell. And instead, 
I can see and savor the glory of God forever. I've never experienced anything perfect. Even baseball games that are perfect, the pitcher threw balls. It wasn't a perfect game. And so I want to see something perfect forever. I want to be captivated by something I've never seen before. And that's God in all of his glory and majesty fully revealed to me. And I don't die when I see him. I just want him I just want Jesus because I know Jesus, but I've never sat down and had a coffee with Jesus. I've never been able to like hug Jesus. I I, I want his presence with me. I want to be with him. He is the benefit of salvation. Eternal life is knowing God, to see and enjoy him in all his glory. God makes dead people alive, not just to rescue them from hell, but to give them the greatest gift of intimate relationship with him. God is the point of eternal life. The glory of God is the glory of eternal life. Through the cross, God glorifies Jesus with the eternal glory of Jesus. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This this verse is colossal. It's huge. Um, it was time for God to glorify His Son in His presence. It was time for God to glorify His Son through a cross, through a grave, through a resurrection, and the giving of eternal life to tons of people. Glory would come through pain. According to Genesis 1.1, only God existed before creation. The world had a beginning. Matter is not eternal. Macroevolution is illogical. It's bad science. Not only does it attack creation science and intelligent design, but it attacks Jesus Christ and his eternal glory. It's antichrist theory. The Son of God existed prior to the universe, and he existed in eternal glory with the Father and Spirit. God's eternal objective, hear this, God's eternal objective is to glorify God. That's what Jesus is asking here. And the cross demonstrates the eternal glory of God. God is asking God to glorify God so God can glorify God. God is all about his glory. Have you seen the glory of God in the gospel? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you're a member. I'm not asking if you do Christian things. I'm asking you, have you seen the glory of God in the gospel? Have you seen the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Jesus was always fixated on the glory of God. Can you see it? Is God amazing to you? Do you love him with all of your heart? As your pastor, I am pleading because I am legitimately concerned for some of you. I don't think you've seen the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to see, to be amazed, to be awestruck. I plead Sunday in and Sunday out to try to point you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I have to trust that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. I have to trust that the Holy Spirit is working in this church. But I want you to see. Don't go through the motions. Give it up if that's what it is about. Don't come next Sunday 
unless you want to see God and know God because that's what this is about. I just plead with you. I'm not doing this because of anything. Just point to Jesus. The Bible talks about Christians having eternal life now and forever. And that means we can see and savor the glory of God now. The glory of God is the glory of eternal life. Can you see him? And let me just tell you, dear one, the glory of God is for you. If you want him, you have life through Jesus Christ This is why Paul could say to live is Christ and to die is gain because God is our gain. God is the greatest gain. What are we wasting our time in this life on all kinds of things that get in the way of us seeing and savoring the person and work of Jesus? Eternal life is all about enjoying his glory. The people who have eternal life know and love God. You have to know and love God to have eternal life. Do you fit in with those people? Do you have a place or are you just the guy that's there for the bluegrass music at the beat festival and you hate beats? Do you fit in with them? Do you fit in with them now? Do you belong because you just are infatuated with God? To live is to enjoy the glory of God. God in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through in someone's life today, either a non-Christian or a Christian, revealing to them the fantastic glory of God. God, reveal yourself. God, I, I can't do a thing to change the people of this church. I can't do a thing to change myself. It has to be your grace. And as I submit to you, and as these people submit to you and to your word, your Holy Spirit changes them from the inside out, and I long to see it happen. If this church never grows over 100 people, God, just so we could say that the 100 people that are here love and cherish Christ, your grace must come. Please do it, God. Please do it for your glory. Glorify your son in us so that you, Father, may receive glory. And may we be glorified one day when we stand with Jesus Christ, completely redeemed to enjoy your glory forever. In his name we pray, amen.